Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today. This show is brought to you by Baraka. Regulated by the DFSA, Baraka is a commission-free investing app where you can access over 6,000 stocks and ETFs from the GCC. With the referral code UNI2022, that's UNI2022, you can get $50 when you fund your account with them. Download the app and start investing. A third of all teenage gamers in America spend more money on virtual clothes, you know, and in-game assets than they do on physical clothes. Right? That's like, insane. It sounds insane, right? It's, insane. It, it actually is kind of crazy in that sense. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Lulu. My guest is Dr. Noah Rafford. He was a founding executive at the Dubai Future Foundation, where he served as its futurist in chief. And he was also an advisor at the UAE Prime Minister's office. He's the man behind iconic projects like the Dubai Museum of the Future and the world's first 3D printed building and many more. He is currently the director at the Oxford University Program for Peace, Policy and the Metaverse. In this discussion, we're going to talk about gaming and the impact of gaming on our society, our beliefs, uh, on politics and governments, on the economy, and more importantly, on mental health. So let's tune in. It's so good to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I want to say congrats on uh, on uh, doing a TED Talk a few days ago. Thank you. Just dropped last night. What yeah. an achievement. It's um, it's been a wild ride, yeah. Okay, so it's on gaming can be a force for good. How gaming can be a force for good? Yeah, and that's actually the result of the last couple of years of uh, of work I've been doing and thinking, um, kind of on the side about just trying to make sense of what's changing and where this is all going. Um, both as as a as a parent, you know, seeing my kids, particularly my son, be so deeply involved in this world, but also seeing the growth of this and the kind of uh, you know, the, the infiltration of gaming as a culture, you know, into culture at, at large, uh, and then also into so many other aspects of the economy. And, you know, I've been working in crypto and for quite a while and to see how Web3 is getting played most successfully in this place as opposed to, you know, a lot of the other use cases is kind okay. of exciting. And then, you know, just thinking through how does this all play out over the next decade and it's been an exciting opportunity. So we're going to unpack that actually. But before that, I want to uh, ask you to uh, to tell us more or tell the audience more about your uh, your job as a futurist. Basically, you call yourself a futurist in chief. That sounds very exciting. So what do you do on a daily basis? What are some of the things you think of? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I always used to joke to uh, my mom who uh, just passed away and uh, learned a lot from her. I mean, learned everything from her ultimately. You know, like what's the... What's the job of the futurist? Well, it's sort of to yeah. give your boss, boss interesting things to say at, at uh, cocktail parties and majlises. You know? <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, that's sort of a joke. But you know, when you look at what a futurist uh, can and should do versus how, how it's often applied, there's always a, there's a little bit of a difference. But I, I like this uh, in this part of the world because the word, uh, when I was working in the prime minister's office, the, my job was advisor. 
And the word advisor comes from the Arabic word wazir, you know, which is the root of minister, wazar, but also is the root of the word wizard. So there's a really a long tradition of learned foreigners sitting in the court um, trying to provide impartial advice about the way the world is working. And they were rarely appointed as actual public officials, and ministers, you know, but they often had an influence but not power. And that has uh, been stereotyped. And you think about like Jafar in Aladdin. It's the it's the big nose, curly curly pointed shoe guy, you know, cackling behind the behind the throne kind of a thing. Um, but there's this long tradition of of advisors trying to help those in positions of influence understand the big picture and translate those into into policies or strategies or decisions. Um, so really, a futurist is just a kind of contemporary version of this long tradition of somebody who. Uh, whose job is to help those in influence think big and translate those into, into decisions. Um, it's always been important, but I think it's particularly important now, particularly in a place like Dubai and in the Gulf, where the pace of change is so, is so dramatic and you're operating in an environment where you're constantly being surprised. There's a lot of things which uh, disrupt your fundamental business model or even your basic assumption about how the world works. Uh, and, you know, the futurist's job at their best is to have a perspective on, on, on the big picture and what's shifting, not per se to have a crystal ball and know like this is, I'm going to make a prediction that this you is going to happen. You don't have a crystal you know? ball? No one, has a, <laughs> no one has a crystal ball. I mean, the, funny, the funniest thing, I think, I think you can always differentiate like a, a, let's say like a real futurist from just sort of a because uh, we have a, a lot hustler, of visionaries, you know? visionaries out there. Everybody, yeah. it's like it's almost like when social media first started, everyone was like a social media ninja, you yeah. know. Yeah. And so we're going through, given the fact that we're going through a lot of disruption and in, in, in scary times right now, lots of exciting opportunities. There's a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'm a futurist. This, I'm a futurist. That. Um, but the true mark, I think, of a good futurist is someone who actually understands what you can't understand, and is able to develop a. A practice, which I think starts emotionally and socially first with um, dealing with the anxieties of uncertainty and then starting to plan from the kind of fundamental realization that the world is out of our control, we don't really understand it, and, uh, and it can be an exciting and scary place, which is a different way of looking at things. You said it in one of your talks, and I really loved it. You said your, your job is to think about what's next after what's next. Yeah, exactly. Right? So you're like, what, three, four, five steps ahead, usually, in your thinking? That's, uh, that's the goal. I mean, because you think about what is where, it, just think about it in like any kind of RFP process or contracting or strategy process. You know, you usually have a brief at that point. You're like, these are the things, the problems that we want solved. And so you go out to the market and you hire a McKinsey or a management consultant or an IT firm or whatever to help you with that. But, uh, but there's stuff upstream of the RFP, you know, upstream of the strategy making process even, where the real fundamental high value questions are asked. Yeah. You know, how do we expect things to change? What does that mean for our organization, be it a city or a company or, or yourself, a small business or a family owned business? You know, how does that impact uh, how we see ourselves in the world? And also, how much influence do we have on that? You know, if you're talking about a national government, you can have a lot of influence and kind of sh help to shape uh, the response to this or even guide the future in some senses. If you're a small business or an entrepreneur, you have to be a bit more reactive. Um, but trying to keep this balance of, okay, we see these things happening and changing that are outside of our control. How do we respond to them? You know, versus here's things that are in our control. How can we kind of help shape those with our other friends and stakeholders and customers and suppliers versus what is, what is it that I really want to do with my life or my resources or, or, or my company? Um, it's like working at that, the, that, those balances, which I think makes an effective use of a futurist. It's, 
asking the questions that you really need to ask in order to properly create a brief that you can hire a strategist or a management consultancy to sort of help you provide the answers for. So it's that upstream of the upstream of the strategy process, upstream of the RFP, upstream of that kind of the big picture framing that is, I think, the most valuable use of a futurist. And you've worked with the, the UAE government for a long time. Um, so is it, did, you, did you tackle social issues, political issues, or is it uh, economic or, or across the board? Yes, across the board. Okay. <laughs> and that, that, that's why, um, aside from you know, aside from the fact that I've been privileged to work with just some extraordinary leaders and wonderful people here. I mean, the, like many, like many people, I came here on a two-year contract, and it's been twelve years. Uh, um, I'm very, very pleased and, and proud uh, uh, of the of the work that I've been able to do here. Um, but uh, but Dubai is, is special because, in the UAE as a whole, because it is a place which has fundamentally reinvented itself every couple of years. You know, there's these cycles that help the UAE stay ahead of how things are changing. And it's got these great leaders who always have this, this vision of the direction of travel that they want to go. Uh, and then, and then it's, up to, it's up to the soldiers to figure out how to make that happen. Um, and I think that's actually a very mature approach to managing in uncertainty. You know, this is where we want to go. These are how we, these are the kind of people that we are. This is our values. And uh, we don't know what's going to work and what's going to get us there. So you try that, you try that, you try that, you try that, you try that. And sometimes you end up competing against each other. And, you know, you have like this big real estate development and that big real estate development or this team doing that and that team doing that. But it's actually a very smart approach to strategy under uncertainty. You know? do, you, do you come in before? Like, yeah, I mean, as yes. a futurist in chief, right? So working with the Dubai Future Foundation, do you, do you come in before that big, picture thinking? Um, do, you, do you shape it in some uh, shape or form? You know, it's sort of in between. Like, obviously, leadership understands the direction that they want to go in. You know, they set the big picture priorities. And then that gets, um, you know, handed down to try to figure out, well, how do we get there, mm. right? And also, but it's, it's a dialogue. It's always been a dialogic process. You say, okay, what should we be paying attention to? You know, we know we want to be this in 10 or 20 or 30 years, right? Well, how are we going to get there? What are going to be the things that are going to be important to pay attention to? Uh, and I think it's, you know, the best, um, the best leaders are always those who, who, who are able to ask questions and say, you know, all right, we want to go there. How do we get there? What should we be paying attention to? What are we not paying attention mm -hmm. to now? And, and that's why I think Dubai in particular, but the UAE as a whole has been so successful in this future orientation. You know, Dubai is world-renowned as a city of the future now, yes. not just because it has really we shiny buildings. We have the buildings. museum of the yeah. future. And we have the museum of the future, which, which I've which been so... Which you played a big part of. Uh, it's been a privilege for the last eight years. Um, but because it's not just the shiny buildings, you know, it's because it's been a place that is constantly trying to say, or what, what are we not paying attention to? What are other people not quite realizing as an opportunity yet? And what can we do about it? Uh, so it's, it's a dialogue there, right? And I always used to joke with... Um, with my, with my old boss, I said, look, I've got this crazy idea. It mm. sounds insane. In about 18 months, you're going to be reading about this in The Economist. And then when you read about that, remember this conversation and come back to me because I'll have something ready for you then. And, uh, and, and, and luckily that we were quite successful with several waves of that. And so you build a kind of trust and rapport that, okay, this sounds crazy. Noah's a bit crazy. But there's something here, right? Like he's got a he's got a good track record there, and so that gets back to this emotional and this social thing, which is why I think it also futurism works so well in the mm -hmm. Gulf, because ultimately this place is about trust and loyalty and relationships, right? So you're more willing; it's easier to take a risk on something which sounds like a crazy idea if this is somebody who you trust. Yeah. 
and, and that emotional and social sophistication is a real advantage for, for the UAE and for Dubai in that sense when you're dealing with uncertain things and big bets on the future. Um, so it's always been this kind of back and forth, this, this in between. And it's a, it's a great place to do this work. I'm going to ask you about some of the projects that you're working on, but what I want to get into into gaming uh, first because we, you know, you you recently did this TED talk, and I think it's a, it's a big focus for you. Uh, and I was curious to know. I mean, there are a million things, right, that you could be uh, thinking about as a futurist, and I'm sure there are. But why why the focus on gaming? Well, that was uh, you know the the outcome of a process of exploration. I mean, I think every any smart person should be. Uh, asking themselves, how does the world work? How's it changing, et cetera? And I'm lucky because it's my job. <laughs> uh, and the around COVID time, you know, we all experienced this, this surprise, you know, surprise and disruption that changed our lives in so many ways. And one of the consequences of that was this heavy shift towards digitization in, in our everyday life, from Zoom to, you know, distance learning at schools to, to even bigger shifts therein. Uh, and so in that moment, uh, I was trying to understand, like, how is this going to really play out? You know, what are the industries that are really going to succeed in, as a result of this shift? And parallel to that, I started seeing my, my son, who was around 12, 11, 12 at the time, just spend a tremendous amount of time in Minecraft. And my daughter is playing a lot of games. And, you know, I play video games. I enjoy them. Um, but I started to, to realize that I think there's something more here, you know, uh, and this was obviously Twitch had been acquired by Amazon already at that point, but the deeper I dug into that, the more I realized that, that games, the gaming economy, you know, virtual worlds as a whole, what we now call the metaverse, but very specifically video games, um, represent this incredibly rich, incredibly, um, powerful mode of social interaction and economic exchange, which I think contains the seeds for a lot of a lot of important lessons for what is going to happen to the rest of economy and society going forward. Okay. Um, and it's the direct result of, of our shift towards digitization in so many areas. And it's, it's where we see crypto and Web3 come in. It's where we see uh, all of the... Um, the kind of next generation of social media and of, of how, how influence and how celebrity is created and how people form their opinions. And, and, and all of that is right now uh, crystallized in the gaming world. And it's also moving very, very fast. So it's easy for a lot of people. And I certainly was a victim of this to think, well, it's just games. Yes. You know, games aren't important, right? And to be blind to the, not only the economic scale, but the cultural influence that these already have and the way that that's going to have more and more influence going forward every every day of the week. Yeah, which is what social media did. And we're kind of reeling from it uh, today, right? With with all the issues that it's uh, uncovering and people are trying to get a grasp on uh, on how to solve it. And I think it's too late. It's too late. And, and, and I'm glad you used that an analogy because that's when the penny dropped for me. I realized that games are social media, right? Mm -hmm. Games are not just a... Uh, well, uh, today, because they're much more... Con or no, actually, it's been, it's been like that for It's been like that for a while, yeah, but, but only for certain segments, right? But if you look at not just the in-game community formation, because, you know, in the, way, in the same way that a certain generation form their identities on Instagram, you know, a next generation is forming their identities in the context of these virtual worlds. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, both who what kind of character and what kind of their identity they have and who they, how they express themselves, but also which games and which communities they affiliate with and which Twitch streamers they follow and, and which uh, kind of um, 
virtual asset communities they become a part of. You know, there's this whole, in the same way, like history, even a long, long time ago, you used to say, I like Tottenham or I like Arsenal, you know, or I like uh, this rock star or that rock star. It is the arena of subcultural formation right now uh, that goes far beyond just like this sort of chat world. So that analogy and I think that's exactly right. And, and, and soon I'll be uh, releasing a little microsite around the talk, kind of explaining some of the stuff a little bit more. But that's the penny drop for me. I realized games aren't just games. They're not just a product, right? They're a medium. And in the same way that social media had so wide, so much, so huge consequences politically, economically, socially, in so many other areas outside of just the fact that it was like a business, video games are going to be doing that. They're already doing that, but it's going to be a hundred times more powerful and influential because they're so much more engaging. Okay. And I can provide some examples that might make that real. Tell me. Yeah. I mean, the, just think about it today, right? There's about 3 billion people who play games every month. Uh, if you look three at... 3 billion. 3 billion. Wow. Right? The video game industry itself is uh, over twice the size of the entire global film and music industries combined. So economically, it's bigger than film and music. Uh, from a time spent, right, we spend... Uh, twice as much time watching and playing video games as we do using all other forms of social media combined, right? So it's already the dominant form of entertainment and social media today. Uh, and, you know, you look at the biggest streamers on Twitch get on average twice as many views as the biggest Hollywood movies, yeah, right? And this is this is basically people watching someone play a game. That's Keep, that's that's something I still struggle to understand, to be honest. Yeah, it seems crazy. Where's where the entertainment in that? It, it's not just that, though. There's a lot of that. Esports and, and all it's that. esports, but it's also just like any other. I mean, just like podcasts, right? It's just like any other form of, of of kind of digitally mediated relationship building. You'd like this person's perspective on this. This person you think is toxic. This person has beef with that person. You know, then they're discussing. Oh, this thing is coming out, and there's this new release, and look at this new skin, and look at okay. that. There's a whole there's a whole onion of not just the games themselves, but then the people playing the games, the people discussing the games, the relationships that they have therein. It's just like any other media. It's just like any other kind of form of society and culture. Um, there's brands, there's labels, there's there's clans, there's beef, there's you know, there's alliances, there's drama. It is it is society, it is culture. You know? So they're talking of, uh, about a lot of stuff other than the actual game, right? So there's a whole conversation happening. Exactly, and this is where things get really really interesting because. You know, it's obvious to think, okay, there's the conversation around the games themselves, right? And then you, like, take one layer b below that or one, one handshake away from that and you end up getting into, okay, all of the, 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 the next level around that. So it's like, okay, there's brand endorsements, there's fashion, there's events, there's concerts, right? There, there's all of the creative assets and culture component around that. And, you know, the entertainment industry, if one were to be kind of crass, is more or less all, all about that. It's about brand, it's about message, it's about product, you know. Um, so you have that whole layer, but then around that, then there's this, the whole larger, deeper, and I think more important component of culture and socialization around how are these people just talking about the issues of the day, right? And that includes everything about gender dynamics and includes about uh, things about relationships and, you know, a lot of people growing up, finding their own sexuality, their own sense of self, about dating, a lot of conversation about jobs and economics, you know, like how do you get a job? What do you do? Uh, what the, what is the long-term economic future look like, which is grim for a lot of people, you know, uh, it then beyond that, it starts to get into politics. And this is where things get really, really interesting, because there is this whole sort of funnel, uh, you know, some people call this a funnel of radicalization, where it starts with jokes, and then it gets a little bit edgier, and you see how people respond. And then, you know, 
in some cases, bad actors will figure out, oh, like this person is is responding to these jokes. So why don't you check out this podcast? Why don't you check out this YouTube channel? Right, and you get a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, and then you're in kind of more more, let's say, like controversial territory. And as you start to sort of test these opinions out in your day to day life, you realize people respond negatively to you, and so you you think, oh, they don't understand me, and then. Then other people come in and they're like, oh, you're right. You know, it is their fault or mm. this person is to blame or you're smart and, they, and they're not. And then you spend more of your time to that little bubble of ideology and bubble of ideology until quite quickly you find yourself in a relatively radical point of view, which is, you know, susceptible for other kinds of engagement. Um, just from, you know, going from a chat room, cursing somebody's mom yeah. and then getting a response. And before you know it, you're in this whole world of, of, of misogyny or, or xenophobia or political extremism. And, and can you do that because, I mean, maybe can you exaggerate that because you're anonymous? I mean, I can be player one, two, three, and I can go and say all sorts of horrible stuff out there and there's no recourse. Right? Absolutely. I mean, that whole, um, if you look at 4chan or some of the, the truly, truly anonymous messaging boards, they're also some of the most horribly toxic places there. And so it's easy to hide behind a gamer tag. Or it's Twitter is battling with that. Big time, yeah. big time. And this was funny, not to skip ahead, but when I gave this talk in Vancouver, I was perhaps naively expecting the kind of social media companies and the gaming companies to respond and try to engage with this. But what I realized was like, obviously Twitter and, and, and Facebook, now Meta, you know, they're being um, raked over the coals around content moderation. And this is uh, a much more intense version of that. And the gaming companies, most of them are making money hand over fist, just doing what they're doing. So they're sort of hoping not to get involved in that dialogue yet. Uh, there obviously are a lot of progressive companies that are trying to explore this more. But the overall, you know, conversation around gamer culture and the fact that, you know, culture as a, as a whole is becoming more and more influenced by gamer culture. And you look at how uh, a lot of the um, economic activities which are likely to play out in the next decade or so are going to be more and more virtualized and more and more around the creation of digital goods and virtual assets and exchange of those and promotion of those. Um, that's going to become a, a, a bigger and bigger portion of our lives, right? So there are people who are starting to look with a little bit more foresight at, and take a little bit more responsibility to that. But the reason I started digging so deep into this is because very few people were actually having this conversation and drawing the dots together in that way. And and, I, and I, I was curious, and I realized there's something big here, so I, I wanted to try to tell that story as loudly as possible to start a conversation. I mean, if you think about it, they are, they are companies making uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenues. Uh, they're, they're listed companies as well. Some That's of right. them are huge. So why would they? You know, there's an economic incentive for them to keep doing what they're doing. And we know that the more uh, extreme things are, the, the more return you get, right? Like if, if you have an outrageous opinion, you're going to get a million people retweeting or tweeting or answering. So it's, uh, I mean, I think, I don't know why all of a sudden uh, Meta is now under attack, because, maybe because some researchers like yourself, you know, took that first step and said, hey, you know, these, uh, like, uh, these social media platforms are causing uh, depression in teen girls, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but why would they stop, right? Like if you talk about the the gaming industry, yeah, I mean, I think governments don't even know what they're what, like. What what's going on? I, as a parent, don't even know like the extent of that. I'm shocked by hearing all these things. I mean, I I never thought it's it's uh, it's gotten that far, right? You think it's harmless? Now. That's now, right? I, you know, I mean, one of the other statistics which which blew my mind when I was doing research around this is there's a, a third of all teenage gamers in America spend more money 
on virtual clothes, you know, and in-game assets than they do on physical clothes. That's right? like, insane. It sounds insane, right? It's, insane. It, it actually is kind of crazy in that sense. Um, if you if you come at it from the old world, you think, um, but you know, from from these people's perspective, it's like it's far more meaningful for them to have an outfit or a vehicle or access to an event in this world because not only do they get more personal enjoyment out of it, you know, they feel happier doing that with their character, getting that level of status than they might in the real world, you know, because if you work in a crappy job or, you know, you're not in a in an exciting town or community or you're maybe you're a little bit different and get made fun of, you know, it's far more rewarding there than it is to be in the quote unquote real world. And that's, that's, that's scary as well. I had, I hosted the Faris Aad, he heads uh, Meta mm. for the region. Uh, and, and I asked him that question, you know, what if your virtual life is much more interesting than your real life, which it could be because you can build whatever you want. Uh, and that's scary. Yeah. Right. I mean, what would keep you engaged on a, on a day to day? Very little, to be honest with you. Um, there's a great, there's a great study by some economists in the States. They were trying to understand if you look at unemployment figures, there is your, the rate of unemployment, which are people actively looking for a job. But there's a whole other statistic for people who have just dropped out of the labor force. And they don't want to work. They don't yeah. want to work, yeah. right? They call them the, the, the missing men, the missing generation. Because in America in particular, there's a huge portion of uh, of men, 25 to 35, who are no longer actively seeking employment. Uh, and these economists dug into what is what are their motivations? Why are they doing this? And, and their thesis was actually it's because they're playing video games, right? And you think, okay, that could be just like this horribly unhealthy escape mechanism. But if you actually talk to these guys and, and, and dig into uh, why they're doing that, it actually makes a lot of sense, right? If, if you're in, let's say, a middle-level town, mid-market in the United States, your economic prospects are pretty grim, right? You could get a job at the mall, you could try and get a job at the car dealership or something of that nature. Um, but all of your friends, everybody that you see on Instagram, that you see on social media, you know, they're, they're advertising a life that you will never be able to afford. So you could uh, try to, and there's a whole hustle culture grind community around this, mostly just sells motivational speeches online, you know, in courses that tries to say, you can go, you know, wake up at 3 a.m. And, and only eat raw eggs and work out, you know, 16 hours a day. You know, they try to say you could have that dream, but there's a huge portion of, of young men in particular who realize that that is going to be unattainable for them. So what do they do? You can spend $60 on a game, then play that for hundreds and hundreds of hours, actually have meaningful social relationships, build up a sense of status, of, of, of accomplishment, of reward, of community in this virtual world uh, for far less, far less money, you know? And you can actually make an impact there. And that's why this is so appealing. And, and, and I think it, you can look at it as a terrifying prospect, um, but I also think that that's a huge opportunity because in the same way that humans for, for millions of years have always, or at least, you know, 70, 80,000 years have always more or less found a sense of personal meaning and fulfillment and, and comfort in, you know, a set of stories and myths and a community of people who participate in those stories and myths, you know, that give our sense of, our sense of short time on this earth, some kind of purpose or, 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 or meaning, um, a lot of these people are getting this from these worlds, right? And I think that's actually quite a healthy response and is a huge opportunity for us, and this was kind of the point of the TED Talk, to try to use those mechanisms, understand the fact that so many people feel alienated and insecure and anxious and are excluded from the mechanisms and halls of power, um, to engage with them in something that's not just a, a fantasy 
escape, right? Not just a community where you can hang out with your friends and feel good about yourself, um, but can be connected to some of the biggest crises that we face in the 21st century, you know, managing climate transition, building more just economic and social orders, you know, correcting some of the historic inequalities that we, that we all suffer from in one way, shape, or form. Um, and, and that's why games are so exciting because compared to social media, they're so much more engaging, right? They have all of these affordances with a, a, a grand narrative, a, you know, social belonging in different tribes and groups and clans, and, and they have an economic incentive mechanism where you can do something, fulfill a quest, go on a mission, and you get immediate reward for that, you, and you have a sense of pro progress as you mm -hmm. level up. And, you know, all that stuff is in-world now, but we are increasingly seeing this applied to real-world circumstances and real-world challenges, which I think is going to unlock the potential for, you know, billions of people to feel super motivated and make a living doing something which is in this mythological game world, but actually connected to the crises and challenges and opportunities that we have today. And that, that's the real hope, you know, that's what I'm really trying to get out there. Great. Let's take a short break. Sounds good. This show is brought to you by Baraka. Regulated by the DFSA, Baraka is a commission-free investing app where you can access over 6,000 stocks and ETFs from the GCC. With the referral code UNI2022, that's UNI2022, you can get $50 when you fund your account with them. Download the app and start investing. So have games changed? Obviously they have, from what you're saying, you, had, you have the old games that we are used to, and now you have the introduction of Web3 and, and all these games that are being built on, on Web3, uh, or maybe not. T tell me, like, what, what, is, what are the key differences between gaming today and what it used to be like 10, 10 years ago? I think it's a tremendously exciting time to be in, in, in gaming right now because of this transition. You know, the, in the old days, you would spend 35 bucks or $60 or whatever, and you'd buy a game, you played it, that was it, right? And then you started to get uh, games that could be connected online. So mm -hmm. there was social gaming where you'd be able to, to play multiplayer or there was a sort of open world component to it and that was really exciting and then you know some people started to add uh, dlcs downloadable content or seasons and you'd pay for the season and you know like fortnite and PUBG are kind of the best examples of this although world of warcraft is really a progenitor um where you know, you buy a season pass and then there's things to get therein. And this is where we started to see this really exciting split in the game world and evolution, you know, leaving mobile gaming aside for a second, casual gaming. If you look at the game industry, depending on who you talk to, is between 180 and $200 billion a year in revenue. Uh, the majority of that, about 75% of that does not come from game sales. It's in-game economies. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking, well, you scratch your head, what, are, what is that? What are people buying in there? Well, they're buying clothes, characters, access to levels, access to events, seasons. You know, the thing, same things we buy in real life where we're going out to a concert or mm -hmm. we're going shopping at the mall or we're getting, you know, paying rent on a house or an office or something of that nature, right? So they're creating and selling these uh, digital goods that are meaningful, that are culture, right, in these virtual worlds, in these virtual environments. But most of them are confined to these walled gardens, right? With the exception of a few of these uh, of these worlds and these economies, um, you know, let's say I spend a thousand, I buy a thousand uh, Skyblocks coins, which is a very popular server for Minecraft. Well, I can use those, take real money, buy Skyblocks coins, and I can use those to buy assets within that world. But then let's say I grow up or I get sick of it or my mom says you can't play that game anymore. Those are sunk costs. There, you can't get those assets out anywhere. 
So that's why Web3 is so exciting because you know Web3 as a whole is has tremendous potential in many, many industries. But the reason I think video games are the most important application of this is because video games are the most successful example of virtual economies that we've ever seen. Right? I mean, you can take crypto out because most crypto is just speculative assets. You know, the reality is in terms of building digital assets and exchanging them and, and creating an economy of meaning around that, games are like the only game in town, like mm-hmm. no, no pun intended, right? And so Web3 is so exciting, and there's so, so many examples of this where you can, uh, you can not only get uh, rewarded for your participation in this world, your creation, even if you're, if you're creating an outfit, if you're creating an event, if you're building a house, right? You know, if you're creating resources there, there's a mechanism for, of, of exchange which rewards you for that. Um, but also in the big picture, and we're not quite there yet, but it becomes interoperable. Mm-hmm. So you own that thing and you can sell that thing. Even if it's just as simple as I'm going to, you know, I, I've got this house, which I built this base that I built in this world, and I'm not playing that anymore. So I'm going to sell that, mm-hmm. right. Instead of going to all these gray market exchanges where you basically like sell your password or you like meet up in world and transfer it to that character. There's a way to actually monetize that and, and make sure that you get the value back that you've created for this. Can you sell it within the game or can you take it to another game maybe so that interoperability that you're talking it, about? It depends. Like every game world has its own different uh, terms of services and most of them are very Web 2.0 focused, right? You know, you have to, there's a central place. They don't really have an exchange. Some of them have secondary exchanges which are allowed where you can, you know, Uh, buy assets or you go farming and you get a bunch of turnips and you can sell turnips on the turnip market you know, and into the game, but you can't get the money out of the, the game there. And you mm-hmm. certainly can't get the assets out. Now, uh, you know, in the midterm, the aspiration for Web3 is, is that uh, perhaps the digital assets themselves in the form of NFTs are actually transferable and interoperable between worlds. That's the kind of dream. But But before that, just having a mechanism of value exchange between game worlds is, is where Web3 is so potent and exciting. And there's a lot of stuff from Animoca to Polygon Markets to a lot of different communities that are working on this um, to try to – and, you know, there's – some of them are using loopholes. Some of them are gray areas. Some of them are official partnerships. But the thing that is so exciting right now, the forefront of games in the game economy, is in Web3 interoperability for, at the very least, value, if not actual digital assets themselves, Right. Um, and this makes you know so much sense in so many ways that it, it's it almost boggles the mind that we uh, allow people to get away with the way that it's done now. But that's part of the larger Web two you know Web two economy, Web two culture shift to Web three, where you, as a creator, as a participant in something, re- are able to retain the value there, and that that becomes something which you can um, you know take somewhere else. Mm. So when your mom comes at yells at you that you know you're you're just wasting your time, you can say no, I'm actually earning money. Yeah, exactly. And how far are we from that realistically? No, uh, not far. I mean, this is this is evolving extremely fast. I mean, take Roblox, which is the kind of like on ramp to this for a lot of younger younger players. Um, and Roblox has a pretty young user base, but um, you know, the there are something. I, think I saw they have 58 million daily active users. Yeah, exactly. It's massive, and the and Roblox is essentially kind of an open world environment where you can create your own mini games. You can create your, you can you can monetize those. You can create assets which are kind of interoperable. Um, there are something like three times the number of Roblox developers, like people making money in Roblox because of the assets that they're creating and the experiences they're creating, than there are Web 3 developers in the entire world. Right? There's like roughly depending on who you speak to, there's about 10,000 Web 3 qualified developers. Right? Um, 
if you look at the last financial statements, and, and I want to double check these numbers, but the you know the number of people actively creating and making money in Roblox is like you know thirty forty thousand people, right? And the average income of these guys is about a thousand dollars a year, right? So it's not a lot of money right now at this at this moment, but certainly if you're a teenager, that's a fair amount of money. Mm-hmm. But the more successful content creators, the more successful people are making decent livings off this. And, you know, it's interesting if you compare that, say, for example, as an output of the creative economy to Spotify, you know, uh, the, 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 I think there's, uh, again, I want to double check my numbers on this, but the number of uh, artists that make more than $50,000, $60,000 a year on Spotify, it's like twelve or 15,000 people out of, I think, 13 million total uh, artists on the platform. And so you say fifty, sixty thousand dollars is a sort of basic living wage for someone in a, in a professional world. And of course, they have bigger costs; they have to pay producers and everything. Um, but if you're talking about twelve or fifteen thousand people out of thirteen million people making a living wage, uh, stunning. Uh, it's stunning, right? That's that's the Web two model. It's the, a, a tiny, tiny minority of people get um, most of the benefit, and the, and the real people who are benefiting from it are the platform owners themselves, right? And then you even just compare Roblox, right? You already have, uh, you know, three times that amount. Now, obviously, they're not making a living wage yet, but it's a sign of things to come. Mm-hmm. And that's why these Web3 things are so exciting because, um, you know, not only is it something where you're able to monetize your own participation and you're able to provide some sort of value for the the, the contribution to a community, um, but uh but there's actually the potential to, given the growth of the game's economy and the game world, to actually make a pretty decent living off of it, particularly if you're, if you're living in um, you know, developing markets yeah. or second world economies where a lot of these players are, right? So that's why I think it's so exciting to think through how Web3 is going to be a fundamental you know, economic development force uh, for a lot of people around the world, um, not, just a, you know, not just a sort of um, larger social justice argument in the context of first world economies. I mean, there's a real potential here in the Philippines, in India, in parts of North Africa, in the Gulf, you know, where people don't have access to traditional employment. And because anyone anywhere in the world can participate in this, mm. you, know, you have access to a much larger, much larger uh, uh, base of customers. So, so what's next, you know, and what's next? So like take us maybe, I don't know, 10 years down the line, how do you see gaming evolve? So there's a, how, how scared should we be as parents <laughs> when my when my daughter is fifteen? I mean, I think you should be excited as parents, right? Really, I, I, I really do because um, certainly if we look at the larger economic landscape of the next decade, right, larger political landscape, the larger environmental landscape, we're facing um, a series of cascading disruptions which are going to make the last decade look, you know, like the opening act of the opening act. Right. Um, so as a responsible parent or as somebody who has to manage uh, any kind of responsibility over a longer term, you know, if you're n- not a shareholder, but if you're a sort of an owner of a company or run a family business or or in a position of public uh, responsibility in the government, you know, your job is to think about the next five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think it, 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 it is absolutely essential that we begin to normalize the uh, the idea that the next decade is going to be extraordinarily uncomfortable and disruptive for most of us. Um, climate change is accelerating way faster and is way worse than anyone wants to admit. You know, our whole professional lives and our kids' lives are going to be spent dealing with the consequences of that. Uh, you just saw, you know, you just saw China announce its intention to shift off the dollar as the global reserve standard. That's going to have like 
intense, crazy global uh, implications, particularly in light of the $300 trillion of outstanding debt that central banks have run up over the last couple of years. Um, you know, not to mention all the supply chain disruptions that we're going to see, all of the shifts in business models that we're already starting to see. You know, everything that we've been raised to think is normal and safe is, is, is going to just get battered, if not destroyed, in the next decade, uh, which is absolutely terrifying. But uh, also opens the door for all sorts of profoundly exciting and important experiments to take place that actually can help try to build a better a better world, right? Build a 21st century that we want our kids to live in. Uh, and I think that the virtual worlds as a whole, virtual economies, virtual assets, are, are will most likely, in my opinion, be a very very important part of that. Just very, very see it as a progression. I, I keep like I keep seeing maybe because I'm old. I don't know. I keep thinking it's just such a waste of time, and and I, I feel that I, I see it as a regression. You know, not, not as a progression. Right. There is a lot of negative consequences to spending too much time on the screen. There's a lot of uh, of shifts in how um, people are able to socialize as a result of that. You know, their sense as we've seen with social media, their sense of self, their sense of anxiety, their sense of insecurity. Um, but the good news is that, you know, if you actually look at a lot of the public health and, and the psychology studies, with the exception of extreme amounts of gaming, extreme uh, screen time, actually gaming can help you moderate your sense of anxiety, moderate your feelings of uh, emotional vulnerability, make you feel good about yourself because you're actually accomplishing something. You know, so regardless of whether or not these things have uh, impact in the larger world, just for yourself as an individual, it's actually a pretty healthy way of coping with uh, a kind of uncertain and dangerous world. Even if the games are violent, because, you know, the majority of the really good games are, you know, about shooting people. And right, yeah. And there has <laughs> been, you know, this was, and as I said at the beginning of my TED talk, like this is not another talk which is claiming that, you know, video games lead to violence because that has been proven wrong. Okay. Like you can play violent video games all day long and you're not going to be more prone to violence, right? Okay. You're, you are, uh, uh, you're prone to violence if you are uh, anxious and you look at other people as less than people, right? And if you are in an environment where violence is done to you and that that's normalized, right? That doesn't matter if you're playing video games or not. Okay. Um, so, you know, video games don't lead to violence, right? Other things in the world lead to violence, and there's those things which are going to contribute to people having a more, you know, anxiety, neurotic-led uh, response that might express itself in violence are going to increase, right? Um, but you know, this—I want to get back to your observation. This feels like a regression. Like there's nothing better than being outside, you know, doing something difficult with people you love and trust, and that you thought was difficult and you could never do. You know, that is like a fundamental part of the human experience. Yeah. Um, so I, the unfortunate reality is very few people today even experience that. hundred percent. Right? And 100%. so, you know, it's. You're stuck I, in a cubicle for like eight hours sitting on a chair or, or. Exactly. And you talk to a lot of young people that are like, wait, it doesn't make any sense for me to, 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 to mortgage my time and put all of my my economic and emotional safety in this company which doesn't care about me and is going to mm -hmm. fire me at any given moment and you know just looks at me as a cog in the machine that's insane actually like that's a regression mm -hmm. you know so i think that that's part of the thing that's exciting right now is we are on this huge values you know debate right now this huge shift in values where the old safe thing of getting a job you know, being a civil servant, try and get a pension, just do hard work and the company will reward you. You know, that that world has been absolutely conclusively destroyed, you know. And it's not like it's a black and white switch. You know, there's still parts of that where it makes sense, parts of the world where it makes sense. There's still a lot of people who feel like it makes sense. In some ways it makes sense for some people, in some ways it doesn't. Mm -hmm. 
But, you know, that train left the station a long, long time ago. So in that context, right, if you are entering a world where billions of people are undergoing transition and transition is fundamentally scary and the need to build new social support networks, new myths and stories of mutual aid and support, a new sense of belonging and identity, you know, in the context of this, um, in many ways, we're so lucky that we have on our doorstep this extremely well-developed technology for telling stories, for socializing, for providing, you know, missions, tasks, and quests, and getting rewarded for that, that, that video games represent. You know, video games at the moment are like some of the world's most well-developed storytelling mechanisms ever, right? And when you start to get a little bit more immersive with that, the emotional engagement of that is so high. So in some ways, yes, I think it's absolutely terrifying there's no guarantee that these tools will be used for positive outcomes, which is why, you know, nothing against meta, but I think why the public opinion has shifted so heavily against meta and Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse, because they've seen, they think they've, they understand Facebook's value, values there. And they've seen, you know, whether it's Facebook intentionally or bad actors on the Facebook platform, use that to promote hate to promote conspiracy thinking to promote uh you know just you as a as an object you know who has no sense of privacy and you know use you as a as yeah. a, a a tool to be sold to advertisers right and they think i don't trust facebook you know so why would i buy that guy's vision of the of this future you know that's a very a, a real concern whether or not it's a fair analysis or not so the reason I share that example is because there's no guarantee that these tools will be used to build a better world and help us through this transition. You know, and that, that's why I say like, you know, my, my friends always at some point in the night after a dinner party, they'll be like, you know, you know, talk to us about that thing. And it's like the, like the worst, like the, the worst conversation killer at a party is like, what's the future going to be like? Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, it's going to be virtual reality, basic income internment camps. You know, like okay. it's explain, a pretty grim exp- future. Like, explain that. I mean, look at depending on who you talk to, but OECD estimates that we'll have around 250 million climate refugees by the by 2050. Right, that's 20 times the number of refugees that fled the Syrian civil war, and that kind of broke the political contract of Europe. One of the many factors. Um, now, UN, I think UNDP just came out and was estimating a billion climate refugees uh, by the end of the century. So we're having this seas of human disruption that are going to be shattering borders and shattering social support networks. And, and, uh, and in the wor- wake of that, there's going to be various kinds of responses. There is going to be countries which are going to harden their borders and, and become more inward-looking and more xenophobic. And that's not necessarily a bad strategy, right? That is a, maybe a, a decent survival strategy. There are going to be others that are going to try to accommodate this. There's going to be countries which will start to offer you know, virtual platforms, you know, virtual citizenship, like Estonia has been doing this, the UAE has been experimenting with little aspects of this around the edges. Um, you know, there's many responses that are going to come from that. Unfortunately, in the same way that the, 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 the least fortunate, you know, if you're a refugee in many circumstances, you're dependent upon a government, a UNDP or a UNHCR, um, to house you, to feed you, right? These are essentially you know, refugee camps are essentially internment camps. You're really not, you're not allowed to leave. There's, you're not even, you know, allowed to have much economic activity therein. Okay. So you're talking about hundreds of millions of people, if not billions, who are going to be exposed to these kinds of risks. So that, that's the sort of internment camp side of things, okay. right? In a future of mass migration and mass mobility, a lot of people are going to, um, are, are going to be uh, trapped in these kind of environments. 
Um, so you're saying people see that virtual reality would be so what do you do in there a similar right scenario actually it's a pretty smart way it's a pretty smart thing for from an entertainment perspective not to mention even a uh, an economic productivity perspective to enable these people to participate in virtual economies through VR and through through and even to pay them right so you know the the, the dark version of this future is a lot of people stuck in virtual reality basic income internment camps where they're paid basic amounts of money to to create whatever they need to create like for the global virtual Turk, economy, uh, like Mechanical Turk, type, exactly, type exactly. Small gig jobs. Small gig jobs. You know, if that is the case for a lot of people, then obviously a lot of people are going to be extremely angry, are going to feel extremely abused, and are going to try to seek retribution and political power in the context of that, as people always have in times of transition. And so you're going to see a tremendous amount of uh, social movements that will then use the same tools. The games. The games, the game, the social the social capability of organization, of telling a story, of identifying an enemy, of providing quests and rewards, of paying people directly, mm -hmm. um, to organize real-world social activities that will support their political goals, right? That was the darker part of the TED Talk, is that you know we already see how Radical extremists are using games to recruit members, to radicalize mm -hmm. people's opinions, to actually organize real-world physical uh, protests and actions in that sense. So as that world of the sort of virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, you know, on the ground, location-based gaming like Pokemon becomes more and more integrated, you're going to see, you know, campaigns, social movements, political, political activity organized in virtual worlds but playing out in the physical world. And so that can be a tremendously confrontational uh, possibility, which is why I think if we don't understand the mechanisms and the power of this now, and we don't also have a view of the future that's realistic of the amount of disruption and change that we are already experiencing and will experience more, we're really just basically just leaving the terrain open for these uh, worst outcomes and these mm -hmm. bad actors to use it for their own gain. You know, so that's why I, I end the talk, and I think that you know it's important that we understand this as quickly as possible, because of course the first step is just recognizing this is the way the world works now. Games are already the new Hollywood, right? They're already the world's dominant You're form of entertainment. You're saying they're already you know? bigger than social media. They're already bigger than social, social media. media is right? huge. There's so much more influential. Like you know, my 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 son and daughter who are 12 and 14. They don't want to get on Instagram. I'm like that's an old people's platform. Oh, wow. You know, like in the same way that certain generation doesn't want to get on Facebook, right? So they're in game environments now. That's what they want. So, you know, we need to recognize that that's, that's happening now. And that's, and that's growing at a tremendous rate. So if you think what's going to happen in three, five, 10 years, in my opinion, it's almost a de facto guarantee that this is going to, that game worlds, game culture is going to become a huge part of our culture, like culture in general, right? Uh, and the mechanisms of, of, of game worlds and of virtual worlds and digital assets that are being prototyped right now in these environments are going to become part of our everyday lives and so many, so many, uh, for so many people, you know, there'll be hundreds of millions of people, if not more, whose entire sense of identity, sense of social belonging is derived from who they are and the role they play in these virtual worlds. And a chunk of their income is going to come from that, but it's also going to then be, you know, reflected back in the real world. So you'll, you'll have corporations, you know, that provide school and provide healthcare and provide police forces and provide, uh, you know, job placement in the same way that corporations do that kind of now, right? But they're going to be doing that based on game worlds. And so you might have your like your little gaming support center and there'll be neighborhoods which provide rent reduction or provide are only available to rent for members of this clan or that clan, you know, this, you know, all this stuff can play out in the coming decade, right? So I think it's important that we first understand this is what's happening now. 
Second, we, we understand how it actually works, you know, which begins with like playing games with your kids and participating in these game, uh, in, in these game economies. And the third is that you actually start to build your own, right? The, the, the ultimate way to shape a better future for this is to participate actively in the creation of game worlds, of stories, of missions and quests and economies, which are, which are uh, building towards a sense of, of, of optimism and of hope and of healing and reconciliation and, and, and addressing the challenges that we, that we all face, right? Um, because we have to have an alternative to the white nationalist extremist shoot-em-up versions of these or the QAnon conspiracy theorist, um, you know, lunatics that are taking over certain governments around the world, right? Uh, so I think it's exciting because it's just like, you know, we're at the birth You just scared of, the shit out of me, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but it's exciting. I mean, it's terrifying. Like, you know, I, I like sometimes when I talk to corporations and boards about this, I'm like, do you guys, were you old enough to remember when social media came in and you had people arguing this is going to be the most important medium of the future and stuff and, it, and you didn't believe it and then uh, look up. Lo and behold, this is this is one of, this is the most important medium. You know, well, we're there right now for games, and you can either ignore it, uh, or you can try to actively participate in it and understand how the culture works and be a part of shaping this for a better outcome. Um, so it is scary, but I also think it's really really exciting. And 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 the more we talk about this, and the more we understand it and frame it in these ways, the better the chances are that we'll we'll guide this towards a, a better future for us all, which is. Which is why one of the things I'm doing now that I've left government is I've started a, a research program at the University of Oxford to to try to, to to unpack this story a little bit more and develop case studies around what is an effective government response here, what are companies doing in a good way about this, you know, how does it actually work, um, how are kids being engaged with this, what are bad examples, what are good examples. So I'm really excited to launch that um, in the next couple of weeks as well. So I'm a little bit scared. Like, what would happen to us, you know, I mean, we, I'm not into gaming. I don't know. Maybe it's too late for me. Maybe not. Maybe I should play games with my kids. You're right. But uh, what would happen to this kind of aging population that hasn't, uh, you know, we weren't grown on, we didn't grow up uh, on that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that is most heartwarming, you see this more and more is uh, grandparents, you know, people who are retired playing games as a means to connect to their kids. Um, their, sorry, their, their grandkids. Uh, and I think that's a beautiful example, right? Because the game, also, the sad reality is a lot of uh, people who are retired or of older generations, you know, more, more or less don't really have any role to play in society. And it's tremendously depressing and isolating and lonely uh, for them. So, you know, in the same way that games appeal to young people who have dropped out of the economy, it also appeals to, to older people as well. It's uh, it's fun. It's engaging. You feel like you're making progress. You feel like you're making friends. You know, you're, you're part of something bigger than yourself. So I actually think that you know, certainly as the boomer generation and and and, and millennials get into that that scene, you know, games are going to be a huge part instead of of their lives. Instead of watching daytime TV and just complaining about how things used to be better, like they're going to be playing games, and there will be games that will be uh, designed and developed for them, and there will be games that we designed and developed to connect them to other. Um, to other communities as well. So I think that's kind of exciting. Um, but the, uh, yeah, you know, the, it gets back to this question. And I was, again, I was surprised because when I did this talk, it was like unrelated to my work in government, at least not directly. It was personal research. And I was curious who would respond to this message. You know, I was saying, I think there's something here. I think this is something we should be talking about a little bit more. You know, who's interested in talking about this with me? 
And like I said, I naively thought it would be the games companies and the social media or the media companies that would engage. But the people who were the first, uh, well, the two groups of people who were the first and most enthusiastic to reach out to me were, of course, um, you know, the intelligence agencies and the, and the people who are responsible for dealing with the negative aspects of this. Um, but reassuringly, the people who have a duty of care for young people, right? Teachers, Academia, yeah. parents, uh, educators, you know, um, also, uh, also those who are you know, involved in questions, I think, of values and morality and spirituality, right? So, so the, the church, um, you know, religious leaders, these are people who have responded most positively to this because I think that they're the ones who, particularly for educators and, and for parents, experience this in, in, a, in a lived way right now. Um, so, I, you know, I've been developing a, a book to explore this in a little bit more depth, but after I gave the talk, and it's been interesting to see the conversation that has emerged as a result of it, um, even though it's you know still quite fresh, uh, I think that there is a conversation to be had, and I don't know what the answers are right now. But you know, I'm looking forward to talking to people about this around what do you, you know what do you do as a parent? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, you know, I mean, if you are a parent, I'm sure we all struggle with that screen time question. Like, yes, how much time do we let our kids be on the screen? Just in general, not to mention games in particular. Um, and, you know, and there is a lot of research which, again, finds excessive gaming leads to anxiety and leads to more, uh, you know, ADHD-like behavior and that kind of a thing. But how much is how much is too much, right? And how how much is that? Do you calibrate that for your kids? And and how do you participate and understand what they're doing? Like, why are they so excited by this, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you really want to understand your children, you know, you need to be playing games with them, uh, or at least talking to them about it. You know, like a huge chunk of my conversation with my son. Actually, and my daughter as well is around is around the games that they love and what they're doing and how it works. And and as an educator and a parent, I try to sort of unpack the, those issues a little bit. So you know, my son is this extremely sophisticated economist now because he set up his own little Minecraft server and he created his own little currency called friendship points and he posts a little leaderboard in his world of like which of his friends have more friendship points and you know his friends like compete to get friendship points and he's like the so he's like the worst central bank ever he's like the the the, the sort of arbitrary distributor of friendship points and and people will like oh no you can sit next to me on the bus you know can, can have some of my have some of my snacks at lunch you know so he understands this in a much more visceral and pragmatic way than i you know i didn't learn about economics until i was in a university student you know really Really, and then it's always supply and demand, and very abstract, you know, theories. These kids are living it right now. You know, they're understanding concepts around inflation and concepts around availability and concepts around building demand and and you know pricing of different goods and stuff because this is the world that they're growing up in, right? So you know, there's so many opportunities to have conversations with your kids about the ideas and and, and concepts that these games are about and based on. You know, a lot of not just economics, but also social values too. You know, there's a lot of questions around gender and gender roles there. And there's a lot of questions around, um, you know, m larger myths and relationship to nature and good versus evil and what is good and what is bad. You know, a lot, a lot of games have moral decision-making built into them, right? So it's, it's, it's a great opportunity for parents um, to, in the same way that, you know, life, like teachable moments happen in life all the time, um, you know, you've got them right there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think we're going to see more of that because I was in conversation with um, their uh, uh, a nonprofit in the United States, and they were kind of in concerned how to get people more engaged in, 
in participatory politics in the U.S. and and um, they were like buying advertisements on uh, mobile game, you know, on mobile games. So it's like in between you play you play level and then you get an advertisement instead of instead of advertising buy this product or something. They're like go out and vote, you know, or get involved in this political issue, which is such a dumb thing to think about because like that's not what motivates people. Um, so I was advising them like if you want to dramatize any of these issues around social justice or income inequality or, or racial understanding or tolerance or equal access to, you know, resources or whatever, create, create campaigns game. in the game that are about this, right? Like dramatize those, the, the issues that are already playing out in these real game worlds in the light of that and use that as your talking points, use that as your mechanism of engagement because that's what people care about and understand. So same is true for parents there. You know, there's there's so many opportunities to to have really important conversations about morality, about values, about hard work, about success and failure, about strategy, about tactics, about how you represent yourself and what kind of a person you are, just with the resources that are right there in your kids' games right now. So, so I don't think it's a question of like more screen time is bad, less screen time is good, you know, although of course, you know, kids should be reading, kids should be playing outside, kids should be hanging out with their friends in real life. Um, I think it's a question about how do you use the opportunity that the reality is your kids are already spending time and thinking about this stuff and you just don't understand it, yeah. you know? So, so you need to get involved. Get involved, play the games, yeah. ask them questions, ask them what they think about this stuff, you know, follow the same kind of people that they're following online. You know, when my son's not playing games, he's watching other people play and talk about games, you know? Try to spend some time thinking about them or even just ask the questions, you know, what does this person think about this? What do they talk about? Why do you like that person? You know, it's just, it's a great opportunity for engagement and in that way. Um, it'll help you understand the world that they're living in and growing into more. Uh, and it will help you get closer to your kids and have a relationship that's actually meaningful instead of just a sort of do this, don't do that, get off the screen kind of a fight, which happens <laughs> for all of us every night. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, I have so many questions. So, so what would happen to social media in, in your view? Will it, will, it, will it be an enabler, a channel, or, or will it just disappear and fizzle out and it'll all be in-game? I think it's a great question. Um, I mean, games are social media. That's, that, that, that was another little switch in my mind when I started to realize this. Like, yeah, well, you know. I mean, you are talking to people, right? So there's the discourse part of it, but there's no, like, the, the inst what, what Instagram did, for example, to social media, which is look at me, look at my life, uh, how I look, and I right. exercise at 5 a.m. or, like, all these right. things. I mean, you don't see that in games, do you? Y you do, though. It, you and it, it, it's in, it, right now, it's through Twitch, Right. Oh. And oh. So it's the gamers live streaming themselves. Live streaming themselves, okay. or then discussing that, or playing, or having conversations just like this about different aspects of the game. Okay. So that that becomes, um, you know, that that becomes the let's say like there's a there's there's a layered there's the game itself there's people playing the game and live streaming there's people talking about the games through podcasts through uh, through Twitch streams you okay. know there and then there's all the way that's chopped up and put onto YouTube and put on you know and then there's Discord that's running through this entire thing right um, a lot of game communities are managed through Discord themselves right so the activities that you participate in with your clan are in game world but all the conversation and making friends and socializing happens on the Discord uh, so you know it, it, it's it's I don't want to say that like it's it's a it, it's a replacement to Twitter and Instagram, but because um, obviously these people still use Twitter and Instagram as well, like top, top streamers, they post their content on YouTube, they post their content on mm -hmm. Twitch and on TikTok. Um, but it's uh, in the in the long run, um, you know, what's been helpful for me to think about this is it's a medium, 
right? It's a medium that is distinct and different and deeper and richer and more powerful and more flexible than social media, than print, than video on demand, you know? And so there's going to be an expression of those things. And also a lot of it is based on live interaction as well, right? Um, there will be new versions of social media which express themselves in that world. But in the meantime, that world is already colonizing and, and, and taking over our traditional social media platforms with perhaps the exception of Facebook and Twitter because it's just a demographics thing, it's an age thing. And for the parents who are saving up uh, half a million dollars or $200,000 to send their kids to university, uh, you know, we have this discussion, my husband and I, all the time. I tell him, by the time my daughter is like of university age, which is in 12, 13 years, mm. I told him, I don't think we will have universities uh, as as they are today. Mm. And he disagrees because he thinks like there's, a, there's the whole... Uh, a communal aspect of universities, right? The social aspect of it and all of that. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I think you're both right, you know, um, in, in the sense that the traditional... But would it even matter? I mean, if... Depends on which community you want to be a part of. Because you just said yeah. at the beginning of the chat, sorry, I'm cutting off. That's but, right. But you just said that, uh, you know, the whole notion of like me going and getting a job and like sitting there is you know, that train has left the station already, so. Same is true for education, right? The same is true for education. Like I was, um, I mean, I was talking to my son about this last night and he was like, what's a, what's a, something that I can do that can make a lot of money but doesn't require me to go to school for four years? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have time at the moment, but I've, you know, we've had other conversations and I was, you know, why, do, why does he think that, right? Because, um compared to the kind of feedback and excitement and interaction and rate of learning that you get yeah. through virtual environments and through games, you know, sitting in a classroom is it's super boring. boring, super boring. Yeah. <laughs> now, obviously there's a ton of research and there has been for a long time that the kind of learning that you do by reading a book and by having a discussion and sitting there, you know, is different than the kind of learning that you do when you read something digitally and obviously different than the kind of learning when you have an, a virtual experience about it. Um, but you know, what is exciting is you look at a lot of the, the examples of how VR in particular has been applied to education, and there's great, like, there's great evidence around this that has been tested in terms of science in particular, right? You take, you, know, you can A-B test a class that goes through a traditional chemistry or biology course, and the class which does it in the context of VR, you know, these guys get demonstrably higher marks as a result, because you're, it's a far more engaging and exciting experience mm -hmm. to be in a virtual world to explore that. Now, the education system hasn't caught up with that at all, right? At all. So, you know, if we're talking about your, you know, your, your daughter, say 10 years, 15 years going to university, um, there will be a whole, I hope, you know, a whole genre of, of university level experiences, which is done perhaps entirely in virtual worlds with little local, local uh, kind of gathering nodes, mm -hmm. if you will, right? Um, which will play to the strengths of, of this. How the curriculum will develop to that is a question. There's a lot of interesting people experimenting with that right now, but education you know, is a regulated industry. So at a certain point, an education authority has to provide cre uh, credentials and accreditation for this. So some places will catch up in some ways by then. 15 years is kind of a long time. Mm -hmm. um, some places won't, right? So I don't think that universities are going to go away in 10 or 15 years. And, and I think that the role of the university as a you know, as a social gatekeeping mechanism is going to get stronger and stronger than ever in certain strata of society, 
you know, in the same way that like Swiss boarding schools have always fulfilled that function and that elite Ivy League universities have always fulfilled that function. So much of that is about socialization and social acculturation and not about the actual content that you're learning there. You know, it's who you meet, how you learn to interact, how you understand how someone behaves in this, you know, to this group, to that group, et cetera. Um, that'll still be there, right? But that also will be available to a smaller and smaller portion of the world's population, right? So we might see a more dramatic divergence of those who have access to and benefit from and are able to get into and afford those, you know, elite offline face-to-face experiences. Um, because in the same way that all of this, you know, so much of this is going online and digital, there is obviously a counter trend in people who want to try to return uh, either from a fundamentalist perspective, kind of like, uh, you know, um, like Mennonite style and, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Mennonites are like a, a group of um, religious conservatives in the United States that okay. you know, don't have electricity and they, they live on the farm and they oh, refuse okay. to use mechanized, mechanized equipment. Um, uh, not like the, the, like the Amish, the Amish are a, a, a version of that. You know, there will be those that really go offline and go low tech as a response to this hyper digitization. Um, and there's a version of which we see right now of luxury uh, for amongst the ultra wealthy that is totally analog and totally offline and not on Instagram and not not shareable. Like that will express itself well. Um, so there's there's that university experience will still be there and important for a lot for some people, but a lot of people won't have access to that, right? And a lot of people, you know, like my son, are going to have to make the calculation even if they can afford it. Like, is this really worth my time? Is this really worth it? From just getting a degree from some, you know. Yeah, because it was old university, you know, that has nothing to do with what I'm doing, and you know, meanwhile I'm making money to get a job, right? Exactly. So, but if that's no longer your gateway, then obviously things will change. Precisely, and I'm making money online, creating virtual socks or memes, or I'm helping moderate this community, or I'm, uh, you know, providing services for this or that or something, um, you know, and. Like I don't want to overstate the case because there's a lot of experimentation and testing which has to, uh, which still has to be done around, you know, what actually will make money. Like, what are the actual activities that will make money for people in these virtual worlds? Uh, I think Web three will enable a more equitable distribution of that and a more accessible, um, you know, possibilities there. Uh, but there's, you know, there, there's no guarantee it won't go the Spotify route or that it won't get, uh, also regulation is a big component here too, right? Like it won't mm-hmm. get regulated into certain sectors or certain kind of boxes that will make it really hard to express the full potential. Um, you know, so it's, it, it, it's, it's still an open question, right? I mean, I'm still trying to save money for my kids' <laughs> universities, <laughs> you know, just, you know, I'm lucky we can afford, we can afford that, but, um. <laughs> There's no guarantee they'll want to go, you know, uh-huh. and there's no guarantee that they'll need to go at that point too. Okay. So that's that's what I mean. It's like uh, everything's changing. You know, everything's changing in terrifying and exciting ways. Okay, so for now we're saving though. I mean, saving is smart no matter what. <laughs> if you can afford to save, save. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was great. Is there any? Um, I know you work on. I mean, we spoke a lot about gaming, but just to wrap this up, mm. um, are there any? Um, other basically big ideas that you're working on that maybe you can share uh, just for us to think about maybe? The, um, the only other one which I'll draw attention to right now is, is, is related to this overall trend towards digitization, but it has to do with how this will affect um, countries, particularly countries as a, uh, a kind of sovereign entity who has the ability and the right to grant things like visas, citizenship, 
you know, bank accounts, write laws, etc. All of, you know, since the Treaty of Westphalia in 17, you know, 1672, you know, the fundamental idea of the nation state hasn't really evolved that much. You have territory, and you have resources in that territory, and you as the ruler have sovereignty over that, whatever your form of government might be, and people outside the territory have to respect that, and when they're in the territory, you set the laws, right? And that's how your economy and society is created. You know, then the only real big in innovation in that space was the creation of free zones, you know, in the 80s, and Dubai was an early leader in that. So you take like Jebel Ali port, for example, you know, free zone is a geopolitical innovation in a way you're saying, this is a bit of my territory, it's in my sovereign zone, but it can operate under a different sovereignty has a different set of laws there. And therefore, you know, you can trade therein. And then that kind of evolved to like, internet city, you know, you're not trading physical assets, but digital assets, and, or at least information slightly still a weak form of sovereignty, but a separate form of sovereignty. And then to DIFC, for example, that has its own court systems dealing primarily in, you know, information, i.e. money, you know, bits and zeros, zeros and ones. Um, so a stronger form of sovereignty that's serving an information space and an information economy, but it's still grounded in a physical environment. There are a lot of interesting experiments and the demand for this and opportunity for someone to embrace this will continue to increase as all these disruptions continue to play out for essentially a sovereign authority in the cloud. You know, someone taking the leap to say, we have the ability as a government, as a sovereign, to issue visas, banking licenses, dispute resolution, insurance, pensions, education certification, health records, et cetera. Uh, and we will do so if you're a member of this uh, organization, but you don't actually ever physically set foot anywhere in this country or anywhere in our city or Maybe it doesn't even have a, a ground, right? It's government as a service, exactly. This is another major line of work that I've been working on for the last couple of years, and I think is very exciting to pay attention to over the last over the next couple of years, um, because the infrastructure is all there for that from a technological perspective. The thing which is just the, the regulatory understanding and the regulatory courage to try and experiment with this is is just catching up to that. But I, I will definitely make a bet, and you can quote me on this that that there are there are um, jurisdictions that are actively exploring this now and sometime somewhere soon in the next three to five years, someone is gonna take a big bet on basically providing citizen services in the cloud without you needing to be there. And that is going to ha uh, run into a lot of conflict because that's like a fundamental disruption to the whole model of like <laughs> regulation and taxation and, and citizenship and, 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 and citizen services, um, but it's gonna have a tremendous degree of success. And the first one might not be the one that, that succeeds and the second or the third one, but that, that, um, that egg has been broken and there's gonna be an opportunity there for, for some sovereign in some way, shape or form to come into that space uh, and start to provide for Getting back to an earlier point in the conversation, the hundreds of millions of people who might be stateless uh, in the coming decades, you know, the hundreds of million people who might operate in a weak or a poorly governed environment or have a crappy local economy but have some services or skills that they can offer to the global economy. You know? mm -hmm. um, so, so that's particularly exciting. So I would say like the whole virtual worlds, gaming, uh, Web3 kind of social movement implication side of things is, is something really important to pay attention to. And the flip side of that coin is is the regulatory sovereign side of that. Like, how do you how do you actually capture that, and support that, uh, so become a part of that if you're a nation state or a city? And I think it's that sort of, it's that basically city, city out of service or nation as a service in the context of digital digital cloud environments. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time. Thanks.
Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Conversations with Lulu with Dr. Noah Rafford. To know more about Noah's work, you can visit noahrafford.com. Don't forget to visit the show's website, conversationswithlulu.com, or you can follow me on all social media platforms at Lulu Hazen. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to subscribe so you get the latest episodes, and please do leave us a rating and a review. It helps in getting the show discovered. Thank you so much, and wish you love, light, and see you in a couple of weeks. Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today.